Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the Wonky Show. We're talking Plan B, the end of cycle, HG staffing, and One Nation Universities. It's all coming up. So I think I think kind of even though even though we might look at this and say, well, you know, that's that's what we knew to be true. Actually, it begins to lay out all of those kind of consequences that actually ministers, I think, downplayed when they made the decision that they made about A level marking and other other level three marking in the summer. Welcome to The Wookiee Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy and analysis. I'm Wookiee's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and here to help us decorate the HE policy tree, we have three fabulous guests. Ian Hertfordshire, it's Andy Westwood, Professor of Government Practice at the University of Manchester. Andy, your highlight of the week. Morning, Mark. Well, my highlight of the week is uh, definitely this new series of The Thick of It. Um, I mean, I love the Peppa Pig episode, but the Christmas party special is just, just incredible. Yeah, it gets it gets uh, more surreal every single day. Um, and in North Manchester, we have Jack, Jackie Girogi, Director of Strategy at the University of Salford and Deputy Chair of our friends at HESPA. Jackie, your highlight of the week. So my highlight of the week is a personal one. My eldest daughter returned from York, so I had a fabulous few days with her um, while she was back home, which was really, really great. Lovely. And from his attic and Team Wonky, it's Jim Dickinson. Jim, your highlight of the week. Oh, I've had a right game this week with our Wi-Fi and, you know, Google Home and, and, all, and all that. But I managed to get it working the other day. And when I asked, uh, you know, for BBC Radio 2 to come on, the first song was Fry Heights Keeping the Dream Alive, which is my favourite non-Christmas Christmas song. The game will never be OK, we start the week with Plan B for England. Uh, that's new COVID measures uh, and some new guidance coming out for universities. Jim, talk us through. Oh, this is exciting, isn't it? Yeah. So um, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, press conference, uh, which was going to be five o'clock, then six o'clock, uh, announced broadly the move to Plan B. And if you read the guidance about what Plan B was going to consist of, you've basically already seen everything that's going to happen. There's that the, the mask uh, mandate in public areas gets a bit tougher. Vaccine passports will be required in the venues that we were told they would be required in. So nightclubs and gig venues and so on and uh, the guidance to work from home where possible gets uh, reintroduced now um uh, as far as we know, uh, Department for Education guidance will be out by the time, formally and, and, pu- and publicly published by the time that the podcast goes out. Um, we've seen a kind of preview of that. Um, in, in many ways, I think what I would say about it all is what the, the situation we are now in in England broadly is the situation that, that friends and colleagues in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have been in for weeks and weeks and weeks. So if there are people in the sector that are like, oh my God, they've dropped 
this on us last minute? Well, it's not that last minute. We kind of got a preview and, you know, our friends and colleagues around the nations have already been kind of coping with some of the uncertainties. The key uncertainty that's going to come up is the one that surrounds work from home guidance, uh, the, the kind of slight toughening of mask stuff and the relationship between that and in-person teaching. Because the reality is that if you're not in a kind of student or, or kind of, you know, public facing role, you've probably already been working three days a week or two days a week from home. So the change here is you're likely to work five days a week from home, at least until Christmas. That the, the, As ever, in the battle between freedom and safety, there will be some people calling for all teaching to move online. DFE is certainly calling for the teaching that is currently in person to remain delivered in person. Right, and that seems to be the key bit, doesn't it? That's that's going to set set up the the battle for the next few weeks. I mean, this really does only take us to the the end of term, doesn't it, Andy? But um, there's going to be a lot of people that are, are saying, "Why am I? Why do I have to come on campus um, when everyone else in the country has to work at home?" Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think I mean I think the first thing to say is, uh, you know, which we should we should say is that at least at least this advice is quick. Uh, I mean, you know, last year was characterised by statements from number 10 and then kind of often weeks before we heard how it should apply in um, the higher education sector. So at least by the looks of things, this is speedy. Um, I I mean, as far as teaching goes, there's only a week of it left. Uh, So, you know, whatever the recommendations are, and as Jim says, it's it's really just a version of um, not just what's happening in in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, but essentially what's been happening in lots of campuses in England too. So, you you know, it gets us to Christmas. Obviously, we have have the return of the advice to students to get tested before they go home and then before they come back to campus. But the harder guidance, um, which is obviously much more dependent on what's happening to Omicron, will be the guidance for next term. Um, and the return to campus, uh, which if, you know, if expectations are right, it, you know, probably going to be bigger numbers coming back uh, next semester because lots of places have been doing a version of hybrid uh, teaching this semester. So really, I think it just buys buys a, a week's time, a week's bit of time and notice until until the much bigger, more important guidance, which will be entirely based on kind of where Omicron is going, is issued. Yeah, and there's also a bigger January start next year because a lot of universities trying to make up lost ground um, for for recruitment uh, in in the autumn, um, and, and so yeah, J- January looks January looks like a nervy time, particularly if some of the modelling is right that the the Omicron peak likely to be somewhere in January. So I mean, it feels like a bit of a holding pattern, doesn't it? In 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 so many ways, because we could head we could head to a much dicier bit in January where restrictions tighten further. Um, if you know if it, whether or not that happens before students actually arrive um is a big answer to the question there's some good stuff here for international students and that's particularly important for january isn't it isn't it jackie yeah yeah absolutely i mean lots of universities have that big january intake and um like andy said having that clarity of guidance early and that sense of um the clear rules around the international students will be really helpful. Which is but, just to clarify that, that the international students aren't going to have to isolate uh, as they have done previously under the, the old rules. Uh, if they come in contact, they, they are able, if they're double vaccinated, they're able to uh, release themselves. Is that, is that, have I yeah, they've, right? they've yeah. fixed the double vaxxed rules for self-isolation for international students that weren't vaxxed in the country. But I mean, red list is still red list, right? And, and, and Boris has indicated that the red list rules, which are about, you know, booking into one of those bloody premier inns when on arrival to the UK, they may be eased in favour of different ways of working out whether someone's safe or not, but not yet. 
So the red list stuff is still in the air, but that thing that's been persisting all term, which is I was double vaxxed in another country, do I still have to self-isolate for 10 days because I live with people who've got COVID? That's now been fixed. I mean, very slowly, but at least it's been fixed. No, no, I agree with what's been said. And it, it, it's still good to have some of that clarity. Um, and particularly for, like I say, those institutions with the big intakes. What I'm more worried about, though, is if Omicron starts to peak in January, what those onward measures would be. And like Andy says, it's really good we've got this guidance out quickly so that universities can react and respond to it. But there's no surprises in there. So it just kind of confirms some of the planning that's already been done. But it's what happens in january and that speed of that new guidance coming out yeah i mean i i think i think that's that's right it's that it's that guidance that matters i think i think what's shifted since the you know the first waves if you like uh is that the the you know the government and the conservative party have become much more ideologically wedded to keeping education open particularly schools so you know there's 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 a potential crunch coming there as there is with lots of aspects of plan b and omicron where you, you know you've got you've got kind of the chair of the select committee wanting to pass laws to keep schools open um and um you, you know and that that do- doesn't <laughs> doesn't obviously fit with the science of a kind of you know of an accelerating kind of wave of omicron in the middle of january so <laughs> you know you know how it also goes down pretty poorly the trade unions uh, well exactly that too that too so you know so so getting that guidance right is going to depend on a lot of things beyond <laughs> beyond the actual detail of what omicron is doing i mean andy you mentioned the the you know the, the shambles uh in your opening i mean I mean, have you ever seen such an incompetent and mistrusted government? I mean, would, would, I guess my question is, you know, we're looking at this guidance and it feels somewhat completely surreal, the, you know, almost kind of like a sideshow. Would anyone take any notice at all to any of this? I mean, have they just completely lost the plot at this point? Well, as far as the guidance for universities is concerned, like I say, you know, how much more can they say in the last week of term? Get it out quickly. You know, most of it is relatively, um, uh, you know, common sense. And that's and that's good. That's good. Uh, beyond that, you, you know, you, you do wade very quickly into all of the tensions that sit within the government at this time. And those tensions include the backbenches not wanting to shut anything. Uh, whether it's education or hospitality, you've got a kind of, you, you know, you've got the, the lack of competence at the centre to control or grip anything. You've got a kind of febrile sort of politics. I mean, it's a very, very hard uh, environment politically to to make the kind of decisions that this government looks like it might have to make come, um, you know, come the start of January. Uh, there was there a lot of uh, a lot of big moments in Parliament yesterday, but a personal favourite was um, uh, a friend of, friend of the show, Wes Treating, now Shadow uh, Health Secretary, of course, um, siding with um, Sajid Javid against uh, Sajid, his own backbenchers heckling him for introducing restrictions it was quite a was quite a moment. Sure, the Secretary of State will agree with me that the effectiveness of the government's response to the pandemic and public compliance with the rules will depend on public confidence in those setting the rules. Residents in Ilford are this week being prosecuted for holding an indoor gathering of two or more people on the 18th of December 2020, and rightly so. Isn't it time that the government comes clean about the event in Downing Street on that same day, admit they broke the rules and apologise, or does the Secretary of State believe, as the Prime Minister appears to, that it's one rule for them and another rule for everyone else? I mean, I I think what I would say is I, I I am mildly 
cautious about the whole thing for a bunch of reasons, right? So, you know, if you look at what other European countries are doing, you look at what the World Health Organization has said, broadly, we're in line. Now, the fact that the stuff that we've announced is in line is then encased with a bunch of kind of British politics makes it all very difficult and uncomfortable. But broadly, we are doing what everyone else is doing, which is being cautious about spread because we don't know whether boosters will hold up against Omicron. Now, if boosters do, and the initial evidence suggests that they will, then that, you know, will not cause us to relax, but at least, you know, will mean that we probably aren't going to have to have even more severe restrictions. So, you know, I, I have, I have, a, I, I am feeling broadly optimistic, but I'm, but, but, the point about that for me, the point, yeah, well, absolutely. The point about that though for me is, I think the danger is that today, tomorrow, Monday, people are in three or four hour meetings on campus, kind of working out whether or not to run three or four le- the lectures that are left in person or not. I don't think that's the thing that makes the difference. I think two things now start to make a really big difference. One is, we are still going to have a bunch of students stuck on campus over Christmas because they've decided they can't afford the risk of a red list return. There's a bunch of students who will be stuck on campus because they test positive or they get the symptoms just before they're due to go home and we need to worry about their welfare. And then much more importantly, boosters are the thing. Boosters are the thing. And for me, and I don't care whose fault it is really, but for me, if it's possible for me to wander around a campus in January and not encounter a Kind of booster bus that is picking up students who can't get on Edurone because there are so many lectures being delivered online, but and so instead are getting boosted. That would be a kind of collective failure of uh, the sector and statecraft. It ought to be an absolute doddle to get boosted in January because boosters is where it's at. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. This is Peter Scott. I'm Professor of Higher Education Studies at the UCL Institute of Education. Um, Higher education research has developed amazingly over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Thanks very much to the SROHE. So many people are involved. It's a really vibrant field. But just one or two thoughts about the future, maybe. First, I think higher education is so important for 21st century society. Going to uni is so much part of ordinary people's expectations nowadays. I sometimes wonder Shouldn't we feature rather more prominently in theories of social change? I think mass higher education is one of the decisive social phenomena of of the last half century. But it doesn't feel like that sometimes when you read the literature. Secondly, a plea for more history. Um, I was a history undergraduate, so I'm biased in this respect. But also as a former journalist, I'm often struck by how incredibly short our policy memories are nowadays. Um, Even the 2011-2012 reforms are now passing into history. So I think we really need to understand a bit more about the history and a bit more accurately, but so often I see rather inaccurate accounts of history, um, if we're going to stop repeating the same mistakes again and again. Third, what about higher education systems and universities as organisations? Uh, of course, there's a lot of research on this, uh, perhaps, but it's either very high-level stuff, it's uh, very theoretical, it's about what I rather unkindly say, isomorphism and all that. Um, we're also very detailed policy studies of the immediate twists and turns of government policies and funding policies. Um, yet there's been a really massive shift from autonomy to regulation in higher education. Now we really need to understand that better, I think. And finally, I really think we need to get rid of our anchor-centricism. Not a criticism that can be made of the SRAG, which is an international, has an international reach. But still, I, I think we 
really feel that if it hasn't happened here in England, and I'd say deliberately to England, because we're not very interested in what happens in Scotland and Wales either, if you're in England, um, what, if it hasn't happened here, it's not really that important. What happens in other countries is really very important indeed. We have a lot to learn. Um, so I, I, I find an appeal for more kind of comparative education. Now, it's the first tranche of the UCAS end of cycle data for the last application cycle. Jackie, talk us through the highlights. Thanks. Uh, really interesting for those who like to ferret about in a bit of data, obviously a technical term. Um, UCAS have released their end of cycle um, dashboards. For the first time, over 100,000 18-year-olds have secured places at the most competitive um, universities and colleges. But the most interesting thing about this is all of this data is released publicly on the UCAS website. Not institutional, not yet. That'll come slightly later post-Christmas. But even so, you can see um, the big changes in um, that demographic upturn. So if you really want to have a look at the populations of 18-year-olds and see what's happening and how that's flowing through into institutions, you can see all of that data and have a look at it. So quite interesting. I mean, it was a it was a funny old year, wasn't it, Andy? <laughs> well, that's one way of putting it. Putting it. It. Um, I, I mean. W- it it's it's a it's a fascinating report and it kind of you know it confirms the stories that that we've all sort of seen and experienced on the ground but i think you, you know if you look at if you look at this year on top of last year and you look at the uncertainties of of the year coming and uh, um you, you know the as 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 the report and kind of coverage of the report suggests it does put extra pressure on on the coming year you begin to see you, you know kind of a, a really really different shape sector emerging um lots and lots of growth in particular parts of the sector contraction in other parts of the sector uh, which was happening anyway but has been hugely accelerated by the kind of inflated uh, um grades that we've seen over the last two years and then and then the reality on the ground for for universities is that by by the time next year comes by the time kind of students are admitted in September next year the entire undergraduate population won't have kind of you know qualifications that we can set as much store by as we might have been able to do in the past you, you know so so the the overall impact on kind of teaching and learning for undergraduates in universities is 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 immense so i think i think kind of even though even though we might look at this and say well you know that's that's what we knew to be true actually it begins to lay out all of those kind of consequences that actually ministers i think downplayed when they made the decision that they made about a level marking and other other level 3 marking in the summer and the impact that it that it is having over the longer term on the sector and on kind of teaching and learning within the sector yeah, we just need to look at the volumes as well. I mean, deferrals are up 15%. So you're going to have an increase in students that have deferred from one year to the next if they choose to go back into university the following year. We've got that upturn in the demographics and that upturn in the population. We've got, you're absolutely right, the legacy of what happened for the previous two years. So that would suggest like real intense competition around places for next summer um, because you know the ability for those universities that have already stretched over the last couple of years to stretch again and you know take more students it's going to be quite a difficult year I think. Yeah and Andy I remember uh, the first year the, um, the the numbers cap came off and we um, we were working together in office and we got the end the end of cycle data and you saw that you know the huge range between the the people who, the institutions that had recruited really well and the ones that had um 
had 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 shrunk dramatically uh, in in one year and that chart has basically stayed exactly the same hasn't it ever since uh, since that that first transfer transfer data even the, the universities themselves are the same ones that you know the winners and losers is kind of now pretty pretty well fixed with with only you know a little bit of variation we've got that that institutional data again is going to come out in in january and i think there's a there's a there's a question here for the government isn't there about leveling up we're also going to get um leveling up white paper we're told in january they've said numerous times that people going through university getting good outcomes is good for leveling up um but you show them a chart like that and you, you map you map those universities that are struggling and shrinking against um the areas of the country that they want to, to they, they claim they want to level up and it match it matches pretty closely doesn't it it does it does and uh and you know i mean i think i think kind of the 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 volatility in the sector which you know, you know started at that point where the number the number of controls came off as as you rightly say but it's intensified over the last two years i mean you, you know when we looked at the the institutional data um that was released you know for last year what we what we saw was kind of growth in some institutions in undergraduate intake of as much as 50% you know and and so so the the, the acceleration of that trend um, has has just um, has just been unbelievable during kind of you know during the the exam kind of problems of the last two years. So 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 you know that effect is is intensifying and accelerating. And like you say, you know, come come January when we get the levelling up white paper, someone uh, and and let's hope this is one of the reasons why it's delayed. Someone um, um, you know and Gove is going to look at that stuff and say this isn't what we mean and this isn't what we need. Um, and you, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge issue, but I think, I think it's going to take someone from outside of DFE to spot it and do something about it and push DFE to tackle it rather than, um, rather than inside, I'm afraid. But, but do you really think we'll get the leveling up paper in January? And do we <laughs> really think they're going to do that join up between, you know, where the coal spots are, where the poor transport infrastructure is, where there's poor economic development and leveling up? Or am I just a bit cynical? Well, I'm just, uh, just taking them at their word. <laughs> I think Jackie's right to be cynical, of course. Um, I think on two levels. One, well, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure we will get it in January because, you know, it's such a, it's now such a totemic thing that it has to come out. But, um, the, the other, the other sort of thing that, you know, you're kind of referring to there, Jackie, which, which is absolutely right. And I think is one of the reasons why it's so delayed. Uh, you know, originally we were expecting this alongside the spending review, of course, is is that um, it's really, really hard to do something that joins up lots of departments when the departments don't want to do the joining up. And uh, and in this particular case, you know, what DFE will want to do is say, look, here's our HE agenda, here's our FE agenda, just stick it in chapter seven or whatever it ends up being and, uh, and let us get on with what we're planning. Um, now, you know, this conversation shows that that isn't going to be good enough. <laughs> And, uh, um, but that's what, that's what the kind of process of writing the, uh, white paper and getting agreement for it across government involves. And of course, you know, you can kind of multiply that across other departments, whether it's transport, kind of, you know, uh, a big, big one is Bayes. How do you spend all that R and D money? Um, and, um, it, it shows, it does show how hard it is to get the thing out with, with decent agreement, but it does show how multifaceted these issues are. And what you can't do is kind of, you know, is, is overlay that approach to higher education on a government priority for levelling up and say the two are compatible because they're not i mean look let me let, let, let me just let, let, let me just park down a, a kind of studentified cul-de-sac for a second right if you're listening to this on friday 
The National Audit Office is publishing a report uh, about a bit of work it's done for Gove's new department, which is the run-up to the way in which regulation works for private renters, right? And there's a fascinating little section in there that says, there's a really clever form of words, that's that where clearly the NAO have said to Gove's department, do you ever talk to DfE about student accommodation? And it's clear that the officials have said, well, there are regular meetings. And then NAO have gone, yeah, but, you know, proper structured meetings and then NAO have gone uh, and then the, the, the Gove's department have gone well I mean not the sort of thing that's actually minuted no <laughs> and, and the reason I think that really really matters is that if we are looking and this is what the UCAS data tells us if we're looking at the number of students accepted in highly selective you know in that group of universities 28% up from 2019 there are huge issues in terms of accommodation quality supply you know the infrastructure in those towns and cities that i just i don't think i've heard michelle donnellan acknowledge once i certainly haven't heard nadim zahawi acknowledge i certainly haven't heard you know ghost department acknowledge and you know quite apart from the kind of pressure on teaching and learning and space and you know whether everyone could fit in a lecture theater if a lecture was being run in person the the the, the lack of attention to the kind of human geography implications of the chaos in the undergraduate market over the past couple of years, let alone over the past decade, I don't think is sustainable. And if that isn't picked up in the white paper, that's a major disaster, I think. Well, from your 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 lips to Michael Goh's ears, I guess. Uh, we'll <laughs> find out in January. That's, uh, that's a very weird... <laughs> what an image. <laughs> yeah. Am I'll I nibbling? <laughs> yeah, you're meant to. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, is a hidden history of HE. The English um, didn't use state power to set up universities. It's one of the curious things that very few occasions have the English actually used state power to set up a university. They've always bubbled up through local endeavour or through uh, benevolence. But there is an occasion or two key occasions where the English have used uh, state authority to set up universities. But they're both in Ireland. So Although there was an abortive attempt to set up a university in Dublin uh, in the Middle Ages, the key uh, occasion comes when Elizabeth uh, accedes to a set of uh, rules that, that you know, it would be a good idea to have a, a Protestant university uh, in Dublin. Uh, and the reason for that is set out in, in her charter to that. Uh, the idea is that knowledge and civility might be increased by the instruction of our people there, whereof many have usually heretofore used to travel into France, Italy and Spain to get learning in such foreign universities. And this is the reason why they want to have their own university, because they have been infected with popery and other ill qualities and so become evil subjects. So Trinity College Dublin is set up with the idea of stopping the Irish becoming evil subjects. Now, I'm not sure how uh, that goes necessarily, but it becomes a Protestant bastion, uh, bastion and therefore they, they continue on that way, uh, you know, shunned by the Catholics. The Irish bishops refuse to let their uh, their students go there. Um, and so there's a, a, a gap in terms of education available to people in Ireland. Uh, and this all comes to a head in 1845, where two um, uh, different but very contentious uh, government acts uh, take place. The first is that Robert Peel decides to extend the amount of money he's going to uh, award to Maynooth College. Uh, so Maynooth College is a Catholic seminary. Uh, it's now developed into a multifunction university. But the notion of giving state money to train Catholic priests is an anathema. Uh, 
seriously splits the, the government, causes huge rows. The pamphleteers go crazy. There are long debates in Parliament about it. But it really comes to the heart of, should the should the government uh, be supporting Catholics? And, and there's a lot of rather nasty... Um, uh, business and Peel describes uh, that the clamour against the Maynooth Bill was the most senseless and atrocious display of calumny, hatred, bigotry, and bad feeling which ever disgraced any country. Obviously, he didn't have to deal with Brexit, um, but there we go. So there's a sense of, of the, the disgrace, you know, the real problem about setting up money to 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 educate Catholics. The other thing he tries in 1845 is to set up uh, a range of government-run colleges. So these, uh, which he, he has the idea that they'll be set up um, around the country, there's a bit of a, a clamour as to which towns get them on, but eventually they're set up in Cork, Galway and Belfast. Um, uh, these are godless colleges um, in the model of uh, University College uh, London. Uh, there's no religious instruction allowed in them. Uh, they're very clear that they've, they've got to be done. There's a weird moment that all of the architects chosen all copy Oxford buildings in order to build them. Uh, so uh, Queen's in particular gets a copy of um, Magdalen College Tower, so they, they build them in a very Oxford kind of a way. Um, but there's still a problem that they're, because they're now godless colleges, they're not teaching religion, the Irish Catholics still refuse to send their students to these these institutions. Um, so you, you end up with this problem that um, there's now disagreement as to whether or not an Irish Catholic student could go to a university and be taught by a Protestant, uh, and vice versa. So there's this, you know, you couldn't possibly talk about it. Peel again comes to this point that, you know, how, how can this be sensible? Um, how can we say that, you know, it would be uh, sensible for um, uh, us to object to an anatomy being taught by Roman Catholics to Protestants or vice versa? Uh, what, a, what a strange situation that is. The Irish bishops um, are sufficiently uh, concerned by this that they decide to set up at their own university. So um, what they do is uh, sensibly invite uh, John Henry Newman to come across. Uh, he comes across to to start the Catholic University in Ireland as a as a, a small uh, outfit to do that. Uh, and, and the key reason this is important is he he gives some lectures to explain why it would be a good idea to have a, a classical education. Uh, and they form the basis of of the idea of the university, which is still one of the classic uh, foundations. So this system continues. Um, there's a, a federal university that looks after the three colleges. It mutates into a, a royal university, which allows uh, the religious heritage institutions uh, in 1880 to join it. So that allows the Catholic University in Maynooth uh, and McGee College in uh, uh, Derry to join. Um, and it moves on that way. And interestingly, the Irish still have that system. The National University of Ireland is is the the, the inheritor of that colonial act in 1845 to try and bring um, higher education uh, across Ireland. Uh, Queen's obviously separates out um, at the beginning of the 20th century, but it's a foundation that they still have that federal system because of Robert Peel. Now, the King's Policy Institute has a really interesting report out by Alison Wolf and and Co, all about uh, staffing patterns in universities over the last few years. Andy, talk us through it. Yeah, so this is, a, I mean, this is a fascinating report, and it kind of links in in lots of ways to some of the conversation we've already had about this year's cycle. And it's it's interesting on lots of levels. I mean, I mean, the first thing that's interesting about it is that one of the authors, authors is uh, Alison Wolfe, who of course has another role in uh, Downing Street, advising on kind of uh, um, bits of uh, higher education. So you, you know that that has. Uh, uh, 
let's say kind of you know increased attention on kind of what she's saying about the sector but the the top lines uh, over the last 15 years are that are that there've been big big increases in managerial and senior kind of professional services roles um and in teaching focused appointments particularly within research intensive universities and and what what does that tell us it 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 says that there are some some big trends in how we organize and divide tasks and roles in universities they'll they'll no doubt be cries of kind of increased or excessive managerialism or commercialism uh, as well as questions about value for money and how universities spend income whether that's from student fees or research and you know and that's going to offer a lot of headlines or lines to take for ministers for the media and and for trade unions in the context of kind of current uh, disputes but I think, I mean, I, I, I found it fascinating for other reasons, I think, it, it, you know, and I, I looked at it a little bit more closely and I thought it, it, showed, it showed quite a lot of how, you know, the divisions between research and teaching and, and research funding is, is driving that. And I don't think it's particularly helpful. Um, so that, you know, the process of winning research funding, of kind of, you know, competing for, for QR um, and the, the consequences for that in the rankings show that universities are kind of adopting particular sort of tactics around around the academic workforce. And I think, kind of, you know, research in a sense doesn't have to care about that, although it should. It should because these changes are, are so significant. But, um, you, you know, I think I think it's I think it's um, I think it's quite worrying, actually. And, and I think. It, it 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 it's not just worrying about how universities react to to the different pressures on them it's also worrying about policy because it's it's partly driven by policy so more market based conditions mean more staff to do marketing and recruitment including internationally more compliance required by a kind of you know a top heavy regulatory system means more staff doing compliance and that list just keeps growing and growing and growing now some of it's justified access participation specialist uh, support for students well-being mental health and all that sort of stuff um but um, but you know it's again like like that kind of recruitment cycle. It's having a fundamental effect on the sector for the long term, and no one's really asking questions internally within the sector or within policy about whether those are the effects that you actually want. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing. I mean, Alison Moore said at the launch event last night that it's sort of it's, it's kind of happened, hasn't it? it? Without really design, this 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 big this big shift in the sector is. Uh, no one, no one kind of sat down to plan this, but for lots of different reasons, you mentioned some of them. Um, you know, this is this is where we've ended up. So it's it's kind of a, very difficult to see how we kind of we we alter course. David Willits had some interesting suggestions, um, uh, and this links to our conversation about about the end of cycle data and about the growth of some universities at the expense of others. He said that um, you know, particularly with the demographic boom coming, we're just going to see this acceleration of increase of growth of Russell Group universities and you know the report says you know size equals bureaucracy equals centralization centralization um and and that's kind of that's that's going to have a huge impact on the uh on 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 the shape of the workforce so a much better solution might be to set up new universities rather than expand existing ones. yeah i think i think that's i think that's really interesting and, and you know how long have we uh, on podcasts like this or in meetings before podcasts talked about unintended consequences in he uh, policy and and you know here we are again is this is this the sector we really want for all the things we want the sector to achieve and uh, as you say you know and, and Alison Wolf did point this out you, you know it's not obvious that that anyone's having that that conversation whether it's regarding kind of you know the 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 institutional 
map that you want for leveling up or or whether it's about kind of higher education for higher education sake i mean i mean those conversations aren't happening and certainly not in um in terms of the impact of uh, of government policy so i think i think it's a real a real issue and i think i think the 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 other thing that really occurred to me on this was um you know just how 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 much of an impact ironically things like qr funding and the ref have had now you, you know it looms so large particularly in institutions like mine where um you, you know it dictate it dictates so much about how you organize yourselves and and yet you know you look at the sr and you look at um um the allocations for funding qr 1.2 billion for mainstream kind of qr um in 2024 25 government's going to be spending 20 billion on R&D. So, you know, for, for, a, for what is, in a, in a sense, a kind of, you know, in effect, a kind of tiny proportion of overall spending, we're getting these seismic changes in the kind of, you know, the sector that does most of the research. And, and, it, and that's another question that isn't being asked within, within the R&D policy community. It's not just about DFE. It's about what kind of research infrastructure do you want in the country and what research infrastructure do you want in universities? I mean, one of the other, one of the other key things that the report picks out is, is the problem with, with casual content contracts and i mean you know there's a there is a very large precariat isn't there in in higher education um and getting into an academic career and sustaining one has has become harder and harder and harder i mean jackie there's evidence from the us that um obviously having a casual contract is bad for individuals well-being career progression and possibly also for students themselves uh being taught by um uh, 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 uh teaching staff on uh, on on casual precarious contracts um also can potentially harm outcomes we don't have as good evidence for that in the uk but it's um it, it's it's likely to be something pointing in the in the same direction if we were able to able to, to pick that out i mean jackie how do we um how do we find a balance where um if some contracts have to be uh, casual for whatever reason, um, how how do we not make them precarious? How do we ensure that um, that that people going through higher education, be they the staff that are working to make it happen, um, or or the students that are uh, are, are learning inside it, um, have a, have a, the sort of experience that we would all hope should be able to be created? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and obviously a really difficult one, not just for the UK sector, but as you've referenced, um, US and other higher education systems and how they answer it. It's that kind of sense of a a, a route into um, academia in the way that some of these um, career trajectories go. But on top of that, going back to what Andy said, some of the unintended consequences around research policy. If a lot of research funding still comes into universities on a project by project basis, it kind of reinforces some of the nature of those contracts when people, you know, are employed to work on those contracts. Um, and it can make it, you know, really difficult from a, 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 a kind of employment perspective when they're uh, tailored to our specific contracts. But on top of that, you're right, from a student perspective, you know, we know that student outcomes are best when both um, professional services and academic colleagues are, are really kind of enthused um, about the work that they're doing, and that's reflected in things like the NSS. So, yeah, so that's a bit of a non-answer, but I just think it's such a tricky one, and it's been around for so long um, that it's a really difficult one to resolve. Just on this, though, Mark, I mean, look, the reality is we've got a demand-led system uh, so, on, on the teaching side, for example, and when you've got really chaotic demand 
fund, which to some extent, you know, the government knows about and has, you can argue whether it's caused it, but, you know, that the stuff we were talking about earlier indicates chaotic demand. It's really, really hard to kind of long-term plan to have the right number of staff in the right places. When you're then also sat waiting for months and months and months for both the Office for Students and the government to reveal its plans on, if you like, the kind of supply side restrictions it might put in, it makes it really difficult if finances are tight for you to start hiring tons and tons and tons of permanent contract staff. So, you know, there's an important bit going on here, I think, which is about the way in which decision makers and policy makers exacerbate and fail to take into account how difficult it is to run a demand-led system when there's such chaos in being able to predict the demand and the interventions that you might end up with in the supply. I think you're absolutely right there, Jim. And I think I think kind of it, um, you know, that's on the that's on the kind of teaching and and uh, learning side. And of course, it, it sits perfectly with our our discussion about the volatility in the sector over the last kind of uh, well, both the last two years and the last kind of ten. Um, so, I mean, there is some good news in the report in which it sort of says, actually, you know, a lot of these contracts are full time. They're not part time. Um, and that's worth that's worth emphasizing. But, you know, fundamentally, as you say, there are two there are two huge drivers here. You know, one is that volatility in the undergraduate market, which is largely deliberate or caused <laughs> caused outside of, of universities, certainly if you take exams and the kind of policy towards them over the last couple of years. Um, but the other is is the sort of longer term more predictable model, which is a lot of people that are hired on teaching only contracts are hired because um, the researchers have won research funding and so they get buyout. So, you know, now that might, that, and that's the way the research system works. So basically, you know, you win your project, it lasts for five years uh, or three years, somebody gets a three-year teaching contract so that you're released to do the research. Now, you, you know, where does that, where does that really take us? It basically means that kind of, you know, the people running the research system and the people running the teaching and learning system in government need to talk to each other a bit more because it creates huge instability in universities and they don't do it anymore. That's somewhere other than the Christmas party, ideally. Well, 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 they do say water cooler moments are important. Um, you know, maybe we should just make it wine and cheese and just have it all year round. Can I? I mean, just another couple of other things on the, on the report, Mark. I mean, you know, I've seen I've seen Alison Wolfe before talk about how expensive the, in particular, the English system is on a kind of per head basis, and I've seen the countries she compares against, and I've thought about those countries and looked at the stuff that get, kind of gets done for students, and in a lot of cases, students are extra for some of the things that they don't pay extra for in England and in a lot of cases the state is picking up the tab and the obvious example here is is 20 years ago were lots of people in universities worried about mental health probably less so right now given that people are more worried about mental health you can either have the NHS do it or you can have academics do it or you can have extra staff do it all three are controversial and difficult and I worry that that kind of debate about where we should put for example spending on student mental health is, is kind of missing from this kind of version of the narrative but but I mean the other the other thing I just wanted to pick up quickly was this question about autonomy so one of the things that I think is disappointing about the report is that the, the authors kind of assume 
assert that academic excellence is strongly associated with university and academic autonomy. And the line in the report says, in the UK, Oxford and Cambridge have the messiest systems of governance with less power for central management. And this seems to be serving them very well. Now, two things about that. One is correlation isn't causation. The second is, well, I can think of lots of ways in which that kind of autonomy actually serves students at those universities quite badly. But much more importantly, I'm not sure that a kind of push-me-pull-you debate about whether people should be given more or less autonomy is very helpful. I think what makes lots of sense is a debate about the kind of autonomy that individual academics, academic departments and indeed institutions should have when balanced against the need for universal standards.
Uh, it's Jim from the team here and very excited to say that in February our event The Secret Life of Students is back. Uh, now in its third year it's all about how we rethink the student experience bringing together experts, sector leaders and professionals as well as student leaders and student junior managers to tackle difficult challenges and work together to transform higher education to better meet the needs of the next generation of students. This year we're doing diversity differently, rethinking the outdated model of designing learning environments based on an imagined normal student and then applying sticking plaster interventions based on diverse student characteristics. Uh, We'll reflect on the findings of the UPP Foundation's Student Futures Commission. We'll consider developments in regulatory regimes for access, diversity and equality. We'll have a wealth of new insight to share from our own research with students and higher education professionals and leaders. And we'll think through how engaging with students' lived experience can transform strategy, policy and delivery. And we'll consider what students are experiencing and saying about harassment and discrimination and where the boundaries are between security and freedom. All of that, lots more. The Secret Life of Students, London, February the 15th. To find out more and book tickets, go right now to wonky.com forward slash events. Now, Richard Bramley, the UPP Foundation, has an interesting paper out from Happy this week about... Uh, One Nation Universities. Jim, uh, what is a One Nation University? Well, this I tell you what, this is a cracking, cra- cracking little uh, pamphlet, and um, it's really good to see. Well, I mean, really, what Richard's trying to do here is is say, okay, there are parts of the Conservative Party that are kind of One Nation Conservatives, and you know, the kind of sector seems to have fallen out with government in recent years. Are there some? Are there ways to improve the kind of stickiness of the Velcro? Right. Which is, uh, you know, which is quite interesting. And, and there's a few things in here. So it's a really good chapter on what he's called balancing place and choice, where what Richard does is kind of assess the kind of, you know, some of the stuff we were talking about right at the start of the podcast, which is this, you know, what you want to do is give people choice between providers, but you also have to worry about place. And he's got some really interesting ideas uh, on that. Second is he's perhaps got some slightly more controversial views in relation to... Uh, the culture wars and civility, and he picks up, you know, sort of heterodox academy, and you know that, that that kind of that whole thing about how the sector should navigate the culture wars, and then certainly from my point of view, really interesting section on what he calls revitalising community, both off and on campus, and and we've been working with a bunch of student unions to kind of try and think through that kind of whole thing about social capital, community, taking on the debate away from just you know community volunteering to kind of what community and reciprocity and so on means so really 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 interesting report that i'd recommend people have a have a have a, have a read of around the chestnuts on boxing day well jim I, th- I thought i think you're right i think it is a fascinating report and i think richard has has kind of you know done, done what he intended to do which is to take on some really thorny issues um in government policy as well as within universities and um and ask us to think about them and i think he's um richard's always worth listening to i mean we shouldn't forget his role in getting the civic universities commission up and running and uh, you, you know that that at the least kind of gives him the right to sort of uh, provoke us to think uh, about some of these kind of difficult issues i agree with you totally about about the chapter about place and choice i think that is such a tension and, and as you say takes us back to the leveling up discussion we were having earlier but um i think i think what he also does and i think this is this is one of the reasons or another one of the reasons why it's worth looking at is is what he tries to do in the kind of one nation vision is 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 build some kind of middle ground between where universities are comfortable but also where kind of where where our government is 
at the moment and where kind of you know ministers and sort of politicians in particular parts of the conservative party uh you know where they are in their kind of perception of what universities are and what they do and the value of that and and so i think what what richard essentially does is say you know is is say move a bit think about some of these things through different perspectives and kind of you know revise the way you approach particular issues whether that's the local community or the culture wars and 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 see where you can get some of that common ground or that velcro as you put it and i think i think just just for that just providing some advice for us to kind of think about you know where can we go in order to have a more civil constructive debate about policy and about all of the things we've talked about so far this morning you know whether it's kind of volatility in the market or research funding or the overall impact on universities or you know kind of where where covid is going all of those things kind of can can become more more of an interesting debate if if you know we go a little bit further beyond ourselves as uh, as Richard suggests. So I thought the report was really interesting and like Andy, I really like the idea of just do something. Like often these issues are presented in such a big way that you kind of look at the enormity of the problem and it's very difficult to see roots in. But that idea of just taking small actions, you know, in particular ways with relevance to place, I think is really important. And actually the Civic University kind of mission that and work that was led by Richard was really great. So, you know, looking at ways that universities can make a really difference um, in their local communities, I think is a route in. I, I kind of went slightly when I read about the student volunteering because there's lots of student volunteering already. And then I wondered, well, is there a way of kind of packaging up some of the work that's already go- going on in universities and just making sure it's got that visibility and profile? Because, um, you know, there's so much good work that goes on. It's just making sure that our students that are working really hard on those agendas get that recognition. Yeah, I mean, that stuff, I mean, that, I, I found that stuff really interesting. Uh, and, and part of it, I think, is there's a really good story to tell about students being able to find students that are kind of just like them on campus, the kind of bonding piece. But the bridging piece, actually, I think the sector has a weaker record on. I don't think students' unions and their societies and groups are brilliant at causing students to hang out with people that are not like them, either in the community or in other parts of the university. So, you know, I think there's some really interesting stuff in here. And, you know, the thing I'm really sad about is it still doesn't feel kind of, you know, at this point in the pandemic like a time when i mean i was reading it thinking i've been reading this for 45 minutes i feel really indulgent there must be a whole series of other things that are on my to-do list to do that are urgent and that's a shame i think because it's 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 pamphlets like this and thinking like this that in the end kind of moves the sector's thinking on and, and transforms delivery in the future and transforms our reputation with politicians and stakeholders yeah i think i think you're right jim i was i was lucky enough uh, to to attend a kind of um a round table on this during Conservative Party conference in Manchester, and and it was, uh, y- you know, lots of lots of uh, vice chancellors and others from from universities that were obviously in town for the conference, um, but also you know lots of uh, Conservative politicians. Uh, um, unfortunately, a, a lot of them were the Conservative politicians that are slightly out of favour at the moment. Uh, you know, people. Uh, I'm not sure I should say who was there because it might have been a it might have been a, a Chatham House. So I won't say who was there, but. Um, but it, it, it still requires a little bit of work in government, let's say, to get to get these kinds of debates and, and the tone of these kinds of debates into the conversations that we have with uh, um, with ministers in in um, 
in government now. And, and I think kind of, you know, actually that's one of, one of the things I really liked about it was the tone. Uh, the, you know, the idea that you can have a constructive debate and you should seek to have one. You know, whether you like all of these ideas or not, you, you, you know, they're, they're said in, in good faith, I think. So that's about it for this week, this year and this season of The Wonky Show. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Jackie, Andy, Jim and everyone at Team Wonky that makes the show happen behind the scenes. We'll see you in January. (laughs) 